Welcome to Two Chicks, Three Seats, the podcast that takes a look at the hospitality industry's hottest topics. Two Chicks, Three Seats is hosted by Kate Kennedy and Rachel Calkins and is brought to you by Triple Seat, the industry leader in event management software. Find out more about Triple Seat at TripleSeat.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode nine of Two Chicks, Three Seats. Today, we're going to be talking about some updates about the coronavirus and the restaurant industry. As more states continue to reopen their restaurants, the conversation continues about how these restaurants are adapting to the new normal that we're in with the coronavirus. So today for this episode, episode nine, we want to provide the latest on these relevant conversations. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> there are indeed. Yeah. And I'm going to start with something that I'm sure is the vein of many restaurant owners' existences right now, um, the Paycheck Protection Program, or what is commonly known as the PPP, um, and what it means for venues and employees. Um, so the PPP, for those of you that don't know, but I'm sure if you're in the industry, you do, was set up very quickly. Um, some think maybe too quickly because of the onset of the pandemic and the closures that quickly followed after that. So there are a lot of questions and concerns surrounding the PPP's terms, um, especially since it was supposedly built to help small businesses, and I hence the small part of that. But many small business owners um, were and are confused by the protocol. And in many cases, you you need to hire a lawyer or a team of lawyers to fully understand it. So um, basically, the short of it is that the PPP is set up as a loan. Um, The loan will only be forgiven if the venues who received funds from it rehire their staff or the equivalent of their staff and pay them at their full salary or no more than a 25% pay cut from their pre-coronavirus pay. This also means that these businesses who use their PPP loan must use at least 75% of it on payroll alone. Um, So the tricky part is, at this point, this all must be done by the end of June. And this is particularly difficult for a lot of restaurants in in a lot of states because um, they haven't even allowed in-house dining to begin yet. Um, like in New Jersey, New York, I mean, there's more state, I think it's about half and half now, but even the ones who are allowing in-house dining, they're cutting it to 25 to 50% of their normal capacity. So they don't even need their entire pre-coronavirus staff, Um, but they must hire them back if they're going to use the loan, the PPP loan. Um, So they do have the choice if they got the loan that they don't have to use it, they can give it back essentially. So Um, if they decide, you know, this isn't going to work for us because we're only doing takeout. I only need three people here. Like, you know, I don't need the loan. Then they can just give it back. Um, but also like if some of these restaurants, I feel like even with just the takeout they're they are, they do need a larger staff and they can't afford to pay them. So they're working towards rehiring their full staff and dealing with, um, you know, just all the issues surrounding paying back this this loan if they can't follow all the protocol. Because the loan will be fully forgiven if they follow every single rule. So 
with all that said, <laughs> um, it's basically right now is, you know, employees are in a very rare um, position where they have the upper hand. Um, because, you know, if your employer needs to hire you back in order to have this loan forgiven, then you, you know, you have the upper hand in all of that. So it's important to ask questions in order to make yourself feel comfortable enough to go back to work. Um, and I feel like Eater did a really good job um, this past week. They outlined six questions that restaurant workers should ask their employers before returning to work. Um, some of them are, I'll go through them, but I'll go through them quickly because there are six of them. Um, how are you calculating my return pay? So this gets tricky with like seasonal restaurants. Let's say your restaurant's on the water in New England, right? So in May, June, and July, August, like you make a ton of money, but in other months you don't because it's a seasonal restaurant. So how are you going to calculate my return pay? Are you going to calculate it by the busy months or by the months that we're not busy? So it, and, and also, and there's no rules around that. So they, your employer can decide to, to do it any way they want to. Um, also, are you going to include like salary versus tipped employees? Like, how are you going to figure that out? Um, so there's a lot that goes into that. Also, what are my responsibilities upon being rehired? The fact that a lot of restaurants can only allow 25 to 50% capacity and they're going to rehire their full staff. They're not going to need them in the same way they did before. So just make sure that like your employer isn't hiring you back to like clean their house or watch their children. Like that's not what this loan is for, obviously. So, but again, no rules to say that they can't do that. So just make sure that that's not what's happening unless you really want to watch their kids. And then in that case, go for it. But, <laughs> um, so a third one, how will you keep me the space and our customers safe? This is an obvious one. It doesn't really need any explanation. Just make sure that as an employee, you're comfortable with the answers you get. Um, and if you're not comfortable, then you have to push back until you are comfortable. Because if this is your health, your life, and, you know, this they're putting your health basically in their hands. So just make sure you're comfortable with all the answers they're giving you. Um, what happens if I don't accept the job you're offering me now? This is a huge issue, and we heard it from a lot of our customers that they're afraid their staff won't come back because they're making more money on unemployment benefits than they did at the restaurant. Um, just make sure you know all the rules in your city or state before you decide that I'm not going to go back because I'm making you know $800 a week in unemployment and I only made $400 a week at the restaurant. Because in some states, if you if you say you don't want to take the job that your employer is offering you, they can they can basically, you know, tell the, the state that and then the state can take away your unemployment benefits. So make sure that you know all of the rules where you are before you, you know, start threatening them. <laughs> um, well, I have a job after the eight weeks of PPP runs out. So something I didn't mention is that the PPP only pays employees for eight weeks. So what happens after those eight weeks are over? I mean, this is a question that your employer may not be able to answer. But it's an important one to ask. You have to make sure that they know that you understand that their pay, that the pay is going to run out in eight weeks and you're aware of it. Um, so they can't be sneaky in any way. You know, you want to make sure that they know you're smart about it. Um, and then lastly, how has your business model changed because of the coronavirus? I mean, we've heard a lot of restaurants that are, are 
just are switching their entire business model. You know, they're, um, they're doing just takeout and delivery for the, for, for the foreseeable future for like the next few years and small events instead of large scale events and all these different things. Like you need to make sure that you understand what direction the business is going to before you just, you know, before you decide to just jump back in. Um, so all of these are really important questions. And I, I really loved this article because I felt like it laid them all out um, very well. So again, it's Eater. You can search it. It's just, um, you know, six questions to ask before returning to work. Um, and there's a lot more information in it. And it was written by um, a woman who owns a restaurant in Maine who did a lot of research on the PPP um, and everything that goes around it. And um, she hired, I think her husband's an attorney and together they worked and they figured everything out. And she, she even put her email in there and said she'd answer questions from people who had them. So um, definitely a great resource, but, um, and important too. I mean, because yeah. as employees, I mean, we, you never have the upper hand as the employee. <laughs> so yeah. now's your time. <laughs> yeah. I, and I love that it was written by her. So it's showing that she's looking out for her own employees as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And they've made a ton of changes in their business. Their business um, is actually like a, it was like a seasonal, um, you know, by reservation only type place. And now they're just doing breakfast and lunch instead of, um, instead of that type of dinner situation. So they've changed their business model too, but they only had, she, she noted that they only had like five staff members to begin with. So for them, it, it was a no-brainer to take this loan. But for a lot of businesses, it's more difficult. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I think it's definitely that article is really informative on how everyone should be informed. Yes. And not let anyone get taken advantage of or just make sure that everyone's aware of the situation before they get back into work. And that goes for employers and employees. Like, it's not just the employee here. Like, as the employer, you need to understand the loan even more, you know, you need to make sure that you're making the right choice if you're using the funds. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to lose even more money than you've already lost. And, and it's confusing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I feel like at first it could look like, oh, here's the money. It, it could seem like a simpler choice, but then right. when you get into the details and you have to make sure you fully understand what you're accepting by accepting that loan and how it could affect everyone else in your restaurant. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, definitely a lot to think about. Good article. Well, on another note, so we also wanted to talk about how as restaurants continue to reopen for in-house dining, they're trying to navigate the proper safety protocols within the restaurant in order to operate. Mm -hmm. So right now, when it comes to implementing safety protocols, a lot of people do feel like they've been in the dark when it comes to getting anything from like the administration in the White House or um because many people know that the Trump administration squashed a CDC report that would have provided some guidelines on how restaurants could begin implementing safety protocols um, from up, up top and really mm -hmm. making sure these things were implemented. But that was squashed because they thought it was overly prescriptive. Um, Which makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that obviously upset a lot of people, but because of this, other private restaurant organizations have been coming together to come up with their own list of guidelines because they do realize that everyone is going through this and no one knows what the right answer is yet. But by working together, um, people are trying to 
push their guidelines and logistics into one place. Mm-hmm. So a few organizations have come up with such guidelines um, to list a few. The NRA had a set. Black Sheep Restaurant Group had some guidelines to share. Uh, the core architecture and design, the National Restaurant Consultants, Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, World Central Kitchen. But then the most comprehensive guide yet has come from the James Beard Foundation and the Food and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. So I'm going to talk about that one in a minute in in more detail. But this guide is a 45-page guide titled Safety First, serving food and protecting people during COVID-19. Um, and so it's 45 pages. It's, it's a lot of information wow. and it takes some input from the other organizations that I listed above, most notably World Central Kitchen, who had a good input in there. Um, but this guide was validated extensively by an infection control specialist. So I think that moving forward, potentially this James Beard Foundation and the Food Soci- and Society Program guide is going to be the one that people can look to for the most up-to-date information and what they should be looking at for their guidelines within their restaurant. So to describe a little bit about safety first, which is again what it's called, they go into different details. Um, Some things we may have heard in the past, but some things are a little bit new that restaurants may not have been implementing yet. So one thing it talks about is assigning a workplace coordinator on COVID-19 rules. So looking at exactly, you know, the basics that we've already been trying to do with recognizing symptoms and uh, sanitary measures and everything like that, like the smaller scale items. So really assigning one person to do that. And I know that from when we have been talking with some of our own customers, we know that they've already started implementing that one individual that's in charge of making sure everyone's following these protocols. Yeah, it's a, I think that's a great idea. I think all businesses yeah. should do that, not just restaurants. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Because it's a lot of rules to remember alongside of just, you know, operating the normal routine of the restaurant. So mm-hmm. having someone designated to do that role is a huge thing I think would be helpful. Um Physically restructuring the kitchen to allow for social distancing is another thing that the safety first guideline mentions. So just how you can move things around to make sure that everyone is still social distancing while working. Um, How workers should act outside the restaurants, making sure that they're giving themselves home exams for COVID-19 symptoms. I know restaurants have already been saying that to make sure that their employees are doing that before coming into work, but just continuing to reiterate, reiterate the importance of that action. Avoiding public transit on the way to work to limit exposure is another thing I know has been talked about, but it's key to moving forward. Um, And immediately checking in upon arrival to work for exposure screening. So another thing that's a little new that I hadn't seen exactly, um, the, the safety first guidelines, we're talking about breaking down your facility into workspaces for personal use, food prep, meal packaging, order pickup, receiving supplies, et cetera. And to make sure that each area has two sets of instructions, one for organization and one for proper workflow. So they give an example with the food prep area. So in terms of organizations, you want to make sure that all food prep stations are spaced at least six feet apart, operated only by one person. The hand washing station should be within reach and complete with soap, towels, and a closed lid trash can to dispose of any trash that you need to. And there should be proper signage demonstrating these procedures. And then when it comes to proper workflow in the food prep area, 
making sure that it's um, evident how to transition from the break room to a food prep station, how often staff should wash their hands, how often you should clean and sanitize surfaces, and especially paying attention to the porous materials like wooden cloth where um, the virus could last longer. So those are a couple things. A couple others that the guide, the safety first guide talks about is that staff should use masks to reduce that to reduce the risk that asymptomatic workers don't spread the virus, um, but other PPE, PPE like gloves aren't necessary for food prep. Mm-hmm. To-go meals should be packaged in paper and cardboard because the virus can't survive as long as it could on plastic. Um, and the guide also specifies packaging instructions for healthcare facilities versus regular customers and how you should differentiate your to-go meals mm-hmm. um, depending on who it's going to. Another thing it talks about is staggering deliveries for vendors and following safety protocols when you're receiving goods from a vendor, making sure to increase ventilation so that you can bring in more outdoor air and fresh the air that everyone's breathing while they're working. And then another big thing, which I know is we talked about before, but managers at the restaurant should be trained to send staff home if they feel ill, implement flexible sick leave policies, and not wait on official notes from healthcare providers to verify a worker is sick or ready to return to work because I mean, you could be sick and you know, you don't need to wait for that. Um, so a lot of these things that they list out, I know we've heard of some before, but I think it's just a good place to have everything in one location because I know there's a lot of moving parts, obviously when you're trying to reopen. So just making sure that you can follow the guidelines and look to one big condensed guide to do so. Definitely the safety first um, guide by the James Beard Foundation is a great resource to look at. Yeah, I like this because there's so many resources out there. And if you're just Mm -hmm. grabbing from all different ones, like at least this like sums everything up in one, you know, one guide. Um, Yeah. The food prep area one is super interesting to me. I haven't heard that one yet. But I was thinking like, they're gonna have to do something to the kitchen. Like I didn't know I wonder if in like smaller kitchens, because I mean, I worked at a, an open kitchen concept bar um, and it was like the kitchen itself was, there's no way you could space people out six feet. I think that the entire like workspace was probably six feet <laughs> in total. And there were always like five people in the tiny kitchen. Um, I'm just wondering if like they just will reduce, try to reduce staff. I guess if you're reducing capacity, you could reduce staff as well. Um but then all those things come up again about rehiring staff and what they're going to do and all that stuff. But um, I was thinking about that, like would people put partitions in, you know, like the plexiglass or um, try to space people out the six feet apart. It's going to be difficult, yeah. but um, that's interesting that they mentioned that. Cause I have been thinking about that. I'm like, what are chefs going to do? Cause they work so mm-hmm. closely together. Um, yeah. Well, something I thought was also interesting, what you just said about installing the partitions mm-hmm. So in the article that some that talks about all the different places that have been adding input into the guidelines, um, core architecture and design, they talk about installing partitions to separate food prep, washing, PPE storage, and waste for disposable containers. So, I mean, I feel like everyone's taking their expertise on what they know and mm-hmm. trying to add it to the pile of information that we have. So like their core architecture and design, maybe they know a little bit more about installing these and how you should design it in your restaurant in order to optimize um, safety. Yeah, for sure. And they're actually a partner with um, with FAB, which is um, a group that Triple Seed is also a partner with, um, basically Women in Hospitality. And they have been doing webinars 
every other week, I think, on um, on ways to, you know, seating plans for the, you know, for social distancing and and uh, making sure there's enough space for people to walk by without, be, you know, being six feet apart and those partitions that you just talked about. I feel like core um, is a great resource for restaurants right now. Um, yeah. And if you go to their website, you can find all those webinars. I think they're all recorded. So, um, yeah. but yeah, definitely some interesting stuff. I'm very, oh, so restaurants, I live in New Hampshire and restaurants are opening, but only to outdoor dining on Monday. Um, but then they say soon after, like a few weeks, they'll open to like 25% capacity in-house. So I'm very curious to see how restaurants will respond here. Um, I know that they're talking about, and they're doing, they're talking about doing this in Boston too, opening, like uh, blocking off the streets to car traffic so that, um, first of all, more people then will be forced to, you know, to maybe like take their bike somewhere and, you know, instead of like the public transit or whatever else. And then also to give more space to restaurants who want to, um, to enhance their outdoor dining so that they can make more money. If outdoor dining is the only way that, you know, you'll be able to eat for the foreseeable future at a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I mean, if the weather is getting nicer like it is, then it's not the worst thing. I know. Of course, Monday is supposed to be like cold and rainy here because I was like, I'm going out to a restaurant on Monday. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to rain. But if it's nice out, I will be at a restaurant um, somewhere. I mean, it's May. It's May and it was literally snowing last week in Boston. So (laughs) like right now it's 70 degrees here. So... (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, all good, really good information. Um, something funny um, and also very creepy that um, I read about today. Uh, Today.com reported that the Little Inn at Washington, which, by the way, is a world-renowned Michelin star restaurant in Virginia, they announced on their Instagram page that when they did reopen, which is soon, Virginia, I, I believe, is Monday, um, they're going to be at limited capacity, but they were going to place mannequins at every other table in order to still appear busy while adhering to the rules of social distancing. Um, my favorite part about this article is that it said that servers will also be asked to attend to the mannequins, which may include engaging them in one-sided conversation or pouring them drinks. <laughs> Can you imagine, first of all, if you work in a restaurant and the owner was like, you have to pretend to talk to this mannequin and also pour them a drink or two. Like, what? I feel like. I'd be like, okay, as long as I can drink their drink. <laughs> right? What a waste. Do I have to serve them food too? It's so <laughs> I mean, imagine you're just trying to enjoy, finally, you get to enjoy a dinner at a restaurant. It's been so long. You sit down and there's a table of mannequins next to you. <laughs> and your server is talking to them. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just like, I don't care how good the meal is. That's weird. It's just so weird. So do the mannequins have to follow the six person per, per table yeah. limit? <laughs> Also, the funny part is, so this place is very, like, Victoria, like, Victorian era looking. Like, it's very, like, ornate, you know? And and mm-hmm. mannequins are dressed in that, like, fashion. So, like, oh, and, like, corsets. And- <laughs> are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> Look it up. Look it up. <laughs> the little one at Washington. Look up there in the page. I'm 
sorry. God bless them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to see a report on how the guests react to that. Yeah, I started following them just because of okay. that. I was like, oh, I'm following that restaurant now. So maybe they'll, you know, they're going to, maybe they'll get more business because of it. I don't know. But it's like a it's like a draw in factor because everyone's like, wow, I need to dine and understand what it means to dine with right. a mannequin. Talk about an Instagrammable moment. <laughs> hey, honestly, we're, we're saying it's silly, but like it's probably going to generate all this activity and then they're going to have increased sales. So right. it works. You're totally right, because if it was closer, I would go. <laughs> I mean, of course. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> we're completely changing our mind now. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, something else that's good. Ending on a high note. Ending on a high note. That's <laughs> always good. So we have some ending on a high note stories for you today. And I'm going to go first with my story. Okay. So the ending on a high note story that I have, which I love, is the Bel Air Diner, which is in Queens, put together a makeshift drive-in movie theater last night in order to drum up some business. So they set up the big movie screen and they showed Dirty Dancing, which is a great one, Mm -hmm. in the parking lot. And they allowed for a certain set of cars to RSVP online to ensure that there was enough space to fit everyone. They offered a small menu of food that could be safely passed out to the cars. And I thought this was awesome. It's a safe and fun activity to do to get out of the house while safely being near other people who are also in their cars and it helped bring in money for the diner. Um, and I know the response was great to the event, and they're looking forward to doing another one in the future. So if you're in the Queens area or you know someone over there, you should definitely check that out or be on the lookout for when the next drive-in theater or diner turns drive-in theater um, <laughs> opens back up. I think this is such a great idea. I wish that more people would do this. And maybe they will if they read how successful this one was, because I would certainly go to one I think it's I mean I I honestly in the summer every summer I try to go to the drive-in theater at least once Mm -hmm. and now that it's getting to be warmer I was honestly talking about it recently with my family and I was like how cool would it be if we could do that still right now because it's safe and we could get food and support a restaurant at the same time or if it wasn't out of theater um you know just like how Bel Air Diner did so I think that's awesome I think it's so cool and I, I feel like towns could do this like like even like you know I live in a really small town but I feel like they could just like if they had a they have a parking lot at town hall and they could put one in everyone could park their cars and like a local restaurant could cater it and I feel like you could bring in money that way too it's sort of like a pop-up event but mm-hmm. um, it's a great way for community to like stay in touch with one another without being like you know on top of each other yeah. <laughs> and you're literally like you're confined in your car, but it's like a cozy thing. Like I love getting all cozy and watching the, the big oh, screen movie and enjoying it. a nice meal. Yeah. That's awesome. I love this, that idea. Um, so I'm totally, I'm totally a supporter and I'll let you know how it goes when I eventually, I'm going to drive to Queens and I'm going to experience <laughs> let it. Me know. I'm going to go into the heat of coronavirus. <laughs> You'll be quarantined for 14 days. So <laughs> yeah. At least well, we can still record podcasts. Yeah, in exactly. In quarantine. Basically the same thing we're doing uh well my ending on a high note um comes from atlanta um which is where one of our second triple seat home is um so co-workers lizzie johnston who is also a photographer 
Linda McNeil, who is a designer and an animator, and Austin Ray, who is a writer. They all work together at a marketing company in Atlanta. They came up with a way to use their talents um, and those of some of their friends to help fund the Giving Kitchen. So the Giving Kitchen is a nonprofit organization that provides emergency assistance to industry workers who are currently out of work. Um, so the idea was to make a zine. And I don't, for those of you that don't know, a zine is basically just a small magazine publication that you, you basically publish it yourself. Um, and you can sell it to the public. Um, my dog's crying right now. So if you can hear that, I apologize. <laughs> um, so they wanted to make a zine as an ode to the restaurant industry, um, in all of the restaurants, bars, breweries, and other places that they miss going to. So they tapped their friends for more ideas and they quickly had inboxes full of hilarious ones. So a few weeks later, their zine called Eating Our Feelings was born. Um, and a quick rundown of some of the stories that it includes are an ode to the honeybee, booze, a dispatch from a South Georgia farm, a haiku about butter, an essay about grocery shopping, more booze. Gorgeous photos and illustrations, a comic strip about frozen pizza, an essay about not cooking, a list of restaurant staff pranks, an essay about important cookies, super important topic, um, a love letter to soup, more booze, and a collection of innovative new Happy Meal toys. So I feel like this sounds hilarious and probably tear-jerking in some ways because it's about the restaurant industry. Um, but you can purchase your own online um, at eatingourfeelings.bigcartel.com. And they're only $20, and 100% of the proceeds um, will be donated to the Giving Kitchen. So bravo is friends who work in marketing together. We should do something like this. <laughs> we all have talents. <laughs> I know. I, lo I love that. I know. And I love the design. I love, like, small magazines like that. Um, yeah, like it's so cool. I'm, I'm really interested in what a love letter to soup and mm -hmm. a haiku about butter sounds a haiku like. Haiku about butter is, sounds pretty amazing. I actually ordered, you can pre-order them now. I ordered one today, so I'll let you know. <laughs> well, okay. I'll read it after I receive it on our podcast. <laughs> oh, so, I love that. A podcast episode, like. Probably by the time I get it, episode 22, <laughs> I'll just read the entire sign, Eating Our Feelings. <laughs> oh. well, that, was a, that was another great ending on a high note. I appreciated both of those. Me too. Me too. Well, I guess that's it for today, huh? 30 minutes this week. Wow. The coronavirus is so much information out there. <laughs> I know. I hope you guys are all staying safe and staying up to date on the latest news and ever-changing industry mm -hmm. updates. Yep. So we'll see you next we'll, week. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Two Chicks, Three Seats, your events industry podcast brought to you by Triple Seat, the industry leader for event management software. Find out more about Triple Seat at TripleSeat.com.